0: Hello, uh, many thanks for coming this afternoon um, to our first talk of the afternoon uh, with Richard Newsom. Um, I'm Echo Eshin, I'm the curator of, of Forum, the, the 154 Talks program. I uh, just want to say before anything, uh, thank you to Christie's Education, who sponsored uh, Forum this year. And uh, Richard Newsom? Rasad Newton is an artist who explores the complexities of social power structures and questions of agency. Uh, he's shown and performed and exhibited um, all around the world. Spaces uh, including the Studio Museum, um, Brooklyn Museum, SF MoMA, Whitney Museum, the Pompidou Center, Garage Center in Moscow. And his work speaks to the power of the human spirit to reinvent and transform itself as evidenced in the black and queer cultural practices referenced and abstracted through his work. His presentation today is called Black Magic. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, that, hold an applause <laughs> for <a push>
1: out. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, everybody, from the 154 team and ECHO for organizing this talk. And so um, I'm just going to talk a bit about the connective tissue between a lot of my performance and object-based work which is really rooted in the diasporic tradition of improvisation. Um, that takes the form of the gesture of collage in my work. And so I'm going to go through a, diff- a couple of projects to sort of show how um, I use that throughout my work. So let's jump right in. So um, in like 2005, I was living in Paris. And at the time, I was um, doing research for a project called Shade Compositions. Um, which we'll talk about later. And uh, I was doing sort of my own ethnographic research of black vernacular. But um, during the residency, I had like a studio. And I wanted to sort of activate the studio in a more formal way. Um, And at the time, I was looking at a lot of architecture. And through looking at architecture and architectural ornament, I came to heraldry. And I became really fascinated with that uh, as a design formula. Because I was thinking a lot about, you know, the culture of domination and how much those images play into the culture of domination, in the sense that they are essentially images represented images made of images that represent a sort of distorted notion of rank, power, position and pedigree within popular culture. Um, so I started to kind of look at these images and kind of think about what would be the images that communicate that today, like bling, cars, having a certain type of hair texture, or a certain skin color, Um, and basically going into popular culture, whether that be like uh, auction house catalogs, uh, magazines, um, the internet, and taking these images that sort of communicate um, that distorted notion of power, pedigree, or rank within popular culture, and recreating coats of arms throughout Europe. Um, This is obviously the Royal Coat of Arms of England, which you all know. And uh, this was the one that I recreated. And sort of staying true to the design formula of heraldry with you know, the, sort of the, the shield, you know, the lion, the griffin, um, and the crest at the top, but sort of replacing that with contemporary material. I continue to make these works. Uh, this was the one I did of the Royal Court of Armour of France, the Ottoman Empire, Spain. And then as I continued to make this work, I started to kind of move away from working from an original image and just kind of work intuitively. And um, as I did that, I, I essentially created uh, my own language of heraldry. And so at the time, I was thinking a lot about uh, how I was sort of reframing this culture or reframing this history. And I was working with a gallery that gave me access to antique frames. And I thought that was a great way to sort of bring that whole idea of reframing uh, into the work pictorially. And so I started to collect neoclassical, Baroque, and French Rococo frames, but then uh, sort of take away some of the ornament and apply elements that you would see in the actual collage, like rope chain and medallions and things like that. Also, at this time, um, as I had created my own language of heraldry, I wanted to, I thought it would be really interesting to have it validated by the Royal College of Arms. And so I, um, I reached out to many friends and finally got in touch with Sir William Hunt, who was, who was the King of Arms at that time. And he invited me to the school. And we sat down, and um, I sort of interviewed him and asked him to explain the history of heraldry. And this was for a video project. Um, that at the moment wasn't titled. And the whole purpose of the video was to sort of give the viewer um, a little bit of history about the art historical reference in the work, because I felt like the pop culture stuff was pretty, um, pretty clear. And the video ended up being titled Percevant, because after shooting that video, he made me an honorary Percevant, which is a junior ranking uh, officer of arms. And um, within officer of arms, you have Perseverance of arms, heralds of arms, and kings of arms. And um, I was thinking about how you know, that sort of uh, that structure could work, uh, could participate in the work. In a way, when I shift rank from being uh, a person to a herald, I can use these, um, this sort of video series as a way to, they could act as these kind of visual cues to shifts in the work. Um, this is an installation shot of the video Percevant. And um, this was when I introduced frames. And so, uh, this is a still from the video. This is an installation shot. And so, that frame was a frame that I reworked. It obviously didn't have the sort of point at the bottom. And the way it was installed is um, it's put on the wall, and there's a hole in the wall with the screen, and the video is a rear projection. And so, you sort of it's almost like Cinderella's mirror, mirror on the wall. And the video starts with um, Sir William Hunt explaining the history of heraldry and then ends with me being knighted, but in my community in New York. Um, along with those works, uh, with that video, was a series of works, which was when I introduced the frames. This is a, one of the first works like that. Um, so part of the Herald's job was to organize tournaments, act as masters of ceremony, and keep the score. And I was thinking a lot about that particular role of the Herald tournament. And I was thinking about a lot of the different work that I was making. Hip-hop culture was um, a consistent reference in the work. But then also, I was doing a lot of work at the time with and about the Vogue community, which I'm a part of. And I was thinking about like you know the houses battling, and then thinking about this sort of medieval culture that I was referencing and sort of a knights battling. And so just thinking about tournament. And in the new bodies of work, I wanted to kind of bring that concept into the work. And I was thinking about uh, how I'm making images made of images. So every image is fighting for its space within the overall composition. The background is fighting the foreground. And the picture plane is fighting the frame. Um, The next video in that series was called Harold, which documents me um, being knighted to become uh, a herald. And as you can see, this frame is sort of like devouring um, the picture plane. It's an installation shot of that. And here's a clip of that video. (laughs) This work is a a work that was connected to that video. Uh, This was called Black Barbie. And this work was really sort of inspired by um, a feud that Lil' Kim and Nicki Minaj were having when Nicki Minaj first came out. This was in a show in 2011. And at the time, I was doing some art direction work with Lil' Kim's team. And I was thinking a lot about um, how women are um, pit against each other in hip hop and, uh, and also just thinking about how I was working with um, images that are heavily consumed in popular culture and how women's bodies have been consumed for as far as I can remember. So I was st- really thinking about, OK, so how are these bodies being used in the work? And it was really sort of the seeds of where the work is now, which we'll get to. But this is sort of like the beginning of, of really thinking about that. These are some other pieces from that series. Um, this one was called The 37th Chamber. Uh, and it was, again, thinking a lot about um, visual tournament. The first layer are images of hair weave in motion as a way to kind of mimic brush, brush stroke. The layer on top of that are these um, golden bees that are sort of in this um, French filigree pattern. And then the crest on the top is sort of Somehow between the background and the foreground. And then the bees that are on inside of the, the frame are also on the frame, and then they also are in the room and then going in and out of other pieces as a way to show, sort of show how this sort of tournament within each work itself, but how the works are sort of in a battle for the viewer's attention in the space as a whole. And so um, I was invited in 2012 to do a show in my hometown, New Orleans. And I thought that was a great time to kind of finish up this series. And I started to think about the video um, King of Arms. And for that show, I, unlike the other shows, I decided to use the museum as the site to shoot the video rather than showing the video with um, a connected body of work. And for that video, I was thinking a lot about um, Just kind of looking back, like what brought me to looking at heraldry, but then also thinking about a lot of my performance work and how it was really engaged in sort of a modernist kind of staging. And I wanted to connect more to stuff from my hometown and thinking a lot about how, uh, you know, mass processional performance, our street performance, which is something I grew up with, and just the various different creative communities where I was from that had long inspired my work. And when Thinking about the beginnings of the Baroque, I was thinking about the basilica. And I wanted to get away from um, working with the body because I was having, as I said before in the other work, thinking a lot about the kind of issues with black bodies being used in the work the way I was using them. And so I wanted to just kind of step away from that for a minute and just kind of think about that. And so I thought working with um, architectural spaces was a way, particularly basilicas. Was a way to kind of reference the body without the body being formally present. And so I embraced sort of like images like the Vitruvian principle and like ribbed um, vaults that you would see in like the Lincoln and places like that. This is an example of one of those works. Also, at this moment, I um, introduced my form of guild, which is um, candy paint. I was thinking a lot about. my early kind of um, examples of people being creative—you know, where I was from, there wasn't a lot of visual artists, but there were a lot of guys who kind of—they had cars, and that was sort of their creative outlet. And they put a lot into their cars in terms of the way they painted and ornamented them. And you know, they weren't artists, but they were creative people. And um, I wanted to kind of bring that narrative into the work. And so um, I started to, you know, paint my frames and these custom candy colors. Um, and I started to collaborate with a local body shop in the Bronx. Um, some of you might know the body shop. I don't know if you ever saw the MTV show, um, Full Throttle, where Funk Flex would like interview a rapper. And while he was interviewing them, their car would be remodeled. That's the shop that I work with. I was also thinking a lot about um, Mardi Gras culture. And so when I was creating... The video, I was thinking, okay, um, how can I kind of bring all these things together? And you know, I thought this would be a perfect example, perfect opportunity for me to stage a different style of performance that's more connected to my past. So I staged a mass processional performance um, from the French Quarter into the uh, the museum where I was knighted to become a King of Arms, and I was knighted by. Um, my two longtime collaborators, um, uh, Ranika Prodigy and Julie Gainey. And uh, these are these are examples of the items I was given once made a king of arms. That's the orb, the tabard, crown, and scepter. The tabard is based on like a traditional herald's tabard and. Uh, Mardi Gras king's costume. The crown is a combination of like a fitted cap and a king's crown. And so, um, the procession was sort of to me like a social sculpture, and it was a, it was allowed me to kind of bring together like a lot of the communities that I have been a part of when I was in New Orleans. Um, at this point, I have been living in New York for about uh, fifteen years now. And I wanted to kind of reconnect to those communities and involve them in the work. And so it allowed me to work with like, the, um, the colorful um, Mardi Gras Indians. Um, I worked specifically with the White Eagle War Tribe, um, also um, McMain High School Band. And uh, they were a New Orleans-style brass band. And you know, brass bands have played a significant role in the development of traditional jazz. And improvisation is consistently regarded as one of the key elements of jazz. And in a lot of ways, it's that lingua franca that's kind of behind a lot of my performance work. And so I thought they would be a really great element to add um, to the festivities. But then also, it was sort of bringing together um, my New York life and my New Orleans life, because I also brought in a lot of the Vogue performers that I was working with in New York. and um, one in particular. Um, Usman Wiles, who I had um, lead the parade. And he was given a great honor to actually wear one of the White Eagle War Tribe's costumes. Um, This is an installation shot of that video. And here's a clip. (laughs) And so that project went on um, to be re I restaged it in Miami. Here are some images from that uh, parade. And it became sort of a whole new body of work. And um, it's a body of work that I'm still doing, and I'm really excited about because it's, it's like a whole new way of working. I just kind of go into a community, galvanize um, marginal folks, and take over a downtown area. And so it's really it's a really fun to make. It's sort of a, it's like a collage, but a social practice collage. Um, I also last summer I staged it in Detroit. And there's always a brass band. There's always a float, which is a car that I wrap in um, what I call my King of Arms tincture, which is the vinyl you see on that car. And so. Um, after completing that body of work, uh, I was uh, thinking about other ways to activate the material in the collage. And my most formal training is in video, specifically post-production. And so I stepped away from making collage in like an analog way and moved into the digital space because I felt like it opened up a slew of possibilities. Um, I started to scan the images and uh, treat them in Photoshop, but then also combine images in Photoshop with Cinema 4D um, environments created in um, Maya, but then also um, a lot of VFX from After Effects. And in a lot of ways, it was sort of bringing together a lot of the things I have been thinking about, like heraldry, Baroque ornament, and architecture, Vogue film performance, and the resilience of Black queer folk. And for me, um, the video I'm about to show you, the video is called Icon. and um, the video sort of, um, it just further ex- examines the language of power and representation, but using architecture as a starting point. Architecture is and has always been um, used deliberately and unintentionally to define relationships among individual cities and nations. And so in a lot of ways, um, for me, um, this video was doing what the collage work was doing, but in a live action uh, format. And in a lot of ways, it was also a queering of these seemingly disparate things. You know, this. You know, one would think that what would be the connection between like vogue film performance and baroque architecture and ornament, and um, uh, also uh, and arc Yeah, baroque architecture and ornament. And I was thinking a lot about how vogue, film, performance is very baroque in in nature, and also thinking about what happens when I put those bodies in those architectural spaces. So sort of the beginning of bringing the body back into the work. This is a clip from that video. <laughs> The Mayes, the Mayes, the Mayes, the Mayes, the Mayes, the Mayes, Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. After making that video, I went back uh, to the collage work, and um, I was asking myself that very problematic question that um, artists often need to ask themselves, um, what is my work about, which I think is a problematic question, because I think work that can be about many different things at many different times, and that can also change at whim. And sometimes you don't even know what a work is about. Until you know you're confronted with the right viewer, who kind of reflects back to you what you're trying to say. And um, but when sort of forcing myself to try to answer that question, what I came to is that the work was about um, the importance and complexities of agency, um, specifically within Black and Black queer communities. Um, I was thinking a lot again about how the bodies were being used in the work. Um, specifically the women's bodies. Uh, And I was starting to develop a new body of work in collage that moved away from looking at the sort of design formula of heraldry, which were much more like symbols, but rather looking at um, actually uh, African masks, which I feel are like the true origins of what we understand in the West as abstraction. Um, And I I was looking at masks because I was always really fascinated with those objects, but then also I wanted to kind of communicate um, this whole idea of or start this conversation about agency. So if that work had eyes and a mouth, it sort of gave the work a sense of agency so it can look back at the viewer as a way to start a conversation um, about agency. And so the new works were really kind of a synthesis of um, looking at um, African masks, but also stills from um, previous performances that I had done. with the Vogue community, particularly trans women. However, the image library I'm working from, d- those bodies weren't really there. And so I found myself using cis bodies to create forms created by trans women, also inspired by African antiquities, right? <laughs> and so um, that was sort of the uh, conundrum I was working in. And uh, here are some images of that body of work. And they were really playful. Like, For instance, this one was called uh, When You Get Your Hair Done for the Family Barbecue and You Know It Looks Good. <laughs> I was taking a lot of like titles. I like Instagram for titles. So like, I was looking at Instagram a lot. Um, that's another one. Uh, this one was also titled uh, um, When You're Talking to Someone, You Know They're Lying, But You Just Keep Listening Anyway. <laughs> I think we have all been in that place before, right? <laughs> Um, and then this one, this one was really interesting for me because, in a lot of ways, uh, I was creating, I was trying to kind of create this non-binary, liberatory sexual politic, and the architect, the, the references to architecture shifted in this work. Um, and they were more of a reference for, because I'm thinking, like, how do I create this image that doesn't exist in the world? How do I give voice or image to bodies that don't have a language? And so abstraction is the only way to go. And one would think, oh, well, how could you be having this conversation about queerness and incorporate these um, Arabic architectural structures? But what was really interesting to me is, like, you know, within um, Arabic uh, architecture and um, well, specifically religious architecture and art, um, uh, uh, Allah is never presented formally. It's always done in this sort of like abstract way. And I thought that was really um, could be a, an elaborate allegory for like what I was trying to do with um, create these kind of uh, liberatory images. Uh, and so that was sort of what was happening there. Um, the frames had also shifted from uh, Baroque and neoclassical frames to Dutch frames. I was thinking a lot about uh, how, uh, in a lot of ways, I'm working very intuitively. So sometimes I'll start on my table and there'll be like thousands of things cut out and I'll put this thing next to this thing and see this relationship happening, and just sort of let the work tell me what to do. And then the image sort of develops like that. and um, so in, in a lot of ways, I'm looking at this on my table of these images of um, these objects. And through composition, they become a picture, but they're all like actual objects that have a function. And so in a way, I'm thinking, like, are they not a still life? And um, also, Given that the work is dealing with images in popular culture that com- that sort of communicate distorted notions of wealth and status, um, I felt like the work was very much in conversation with um, *Vinitas*, and so I thought it was a great uh, way to kind of bring that into the work pictorially by bringing in um, my versions of Dutch frames. Um, also, the frames were. Um, painted in my signature candy paint. Um, This paint is a paint that I call Black Magic. It's a candy paint that's a high gloss black with lots of uh, metal flake in it. So when light hits it, it really kind of explodes with tons of different colors, which you can't really see in reproduction. But in um, real life, you can. And they're also um, covered in, in leather as a way to kind of play with sort of like the fetishization of these objects, but also the bodies used in the work. Uh, this work uh, was sort of like the beginnings of where the work is now, um, because this was the one image in the show that was a much a more fully formed uh, figure, not just a face. And I was using explosions a lot, and I was thinking about Originally, I was looking at images of explosions as a way to kind of communicate the kind of explosive or the frenetic energy of Vogue performance, because I was working from a lot of stills and trying to emulate that movement. But in this work, the explosions not only represented that, but also, to me, there was sort of like an evisceration of like a lot of the ideas in the work in the past. It was sort of like a purifying, like going into a new, direction. You see also the architecture there as a reference for the building of the self when the self doesn't exist in the world. And um, it was also playing with um, perception, because uh, this figure is looking through the phone. We're well, looking at a mirror at itself in the phone, so sort of like the whole selfie. So it's like an image of an image of an image. But it's also an image made of images. So it's an image of an image of an image of an image of an image. Um, and so to anchor that exhibition, um, I did a piece called Stop Playing in My Face, which was also um, the title of uh, the show. And that title came from me thinking about uh, how I am looking at these performances I did with trans women and pulling stills from that and using that as source material for how to kind of design the picture, but then also using cis bodies from like Video Vixen magazines and to kind of create these forms and thinking about these two bodies and how they access agency in the world. And then also thinking about how so much of my ideas of what agency is and could be um, stem from you know, academe. And I was thinking about, so how do you understand these kind of complex ideas of agency outside of academe? And more like in practice, like how do you, have, you know, uh, find out about agency and how to access that in the club or in the workplace or uh, at church? And so um, these were all the things that I was thinking about and also trying to figure out what my um, feminist voice, for lack of a better term, um, in the work was. And uh, the video kind of for me. was the the beginnings of kind of formulating that. Uh, I I worked with uh, Laomi Maldonado, who a lot of you may know. She's probably the most recognized Vogue film performer in New York City. And we sat for a few days kind of figuring out how to do this video. And originally, it was going to be her and her house. She's a trans woman who really kind of spearheaded the women's Vogue movement. But as we talked, and I interviewed her more and more, it was sort of like, you know, she's a very, very confident person. And I was like, how do you find this confidence, like in a space where you know people are just kind of like coming at you all the time? And she was like, you sort of have to be your own cheerleader. You have to kind of, you know, look out for yourself and really hold yourself up. So I decided not to do the video with her in her house, but rather just with her and just multiply her. And um, I used an image of. It's based on an image of the the Liberation Tower in Bavaria, uh, which is surrounded by all these karyatids, but I replaced them with um, her. And she's kind of holding court at the top of the tower. And and so the, actual, the video is actually based on a collage that was in the show, but it's um, a more live action version of that image. And as the camera pulls out, you see the work, and it has a mouth, and it's speaking. And the voices that comprise um, the character are uh, just snippets from different people to me that kind of um, speak to my idea of feminism, um, which is a much more intersectional idea of what that is. And uh, none of them don't agree, and I think that's okay. I think that that's the, I think it's a life work to kind of um, figure that out. And um, so it was bell hooks, Marcia Blackman, um, Janet Mock. It was a snippet from Lena Dunham in The Scandal, where she reads uh, Olivia Pope. There's a. And then Samantha James Revlon, who is actually the person who I got the title of the work and the show from. And the title was called Stop Playing In My Face, because she did a video on YouTube where she's at a makeup counter. And she had just done her makeup. And she was saying how, in the past, people had tried to sabotage her by doing her makeup wrong. And she was essentially saying, if you can't realize me the way I see myself, then stop playing in my fucking face. And I thought, OK, that's like a great question for me to ask myself, because I'm thinking about how these figures access agency, but then also what agency I have in creating these images in the first place. And so that was sort of the question that I felt was left to be answered from the exhibition. So I thought it was a great uh, title for the show. Also, when I watched that video, I was, working and I just kind of looked up and I saw all these faces so it just seemed like a really appropriate uh, title and so here is a clip from that video. <laughs> After completing that show, uh, I was thinking a lot about that question, whether or not I was playing in the face of the bodies I was um, referencing and speaking to in the work. And I started to develop uh, a new body of work as an attempt to sort of answer that question. And I was um, thinking about... uh, these African antiquities that I was looking at for inspiration, and kind of shifting that conversation around agency um, to those objects, and thinking about how they access agency in the world. Oftentimes, when we see, you know, African sculptures and masks, we see them in museums, and they found their way there by pretty gnarly uh, means. And Oftentimes, when you look at the label, it's um, unknown object from such and such. And so a lot of the, I feel like the practitioners who have really kind of created the language of abstraction that we understand in the West are sort of erased. And I was thinking about agency in that sense. And um, I was thinking about one of the most important works that speaks to um, abstraction, particularly like cubism and surrealism, which is a lot of, which I think are movements that my work is in conversation with. And so I looked at the Les Mazelles d'Avignon and I recreated that work, but in my style, and thinking about what does it mean for me as an African American to reclaim these objects and abstract them the same way that Europeans had done for, um, for years. And um, sort of, I was thinking also about. Um, how problematic that question is of stop playing in my face. And so I thought that you know the framework um, that I am a cis man working with women isn't actually what's happening in the work. The work is operating in a realm of the imaginary, which is a realm that is non-binary. Non-binary is a space where many different energies and genders are interacting. So it no longer reads as me creating women's bodies as someone who is not a woman. To think that way sort of imposes a framework uh, onto the work that really isn't there. For me, what is exciting in the work is the abundance of possibility. Don't get me wrong; I don't believe that we are in a post-gender society. However, in in the work, I think there was a gesture towards towards uh, post-gender f- futurity, um, which makes irrelevant what my gen- genitalia is and those of the bodies I'm working with. And so much of the language of feminism, if you notice earlier, I said for lack of a better term, because. A lot of the elders that I speak to um, were, in a lot of ways, left out of that movement, which is why there was movements like um, the womanist movement and things like that. And so um, so much of what, what we understand as feminism in academia is deeply steeped in the experiences of white cis women. And I'm not working through that genealogy. In my work, gender is accessed through blackness. And shifting to think about gender that way allows one to think about a more diverse sense of coalition and relating, focusing heavily on the male gaze, really didn't give um, authenticity to the complexity of my lived experience and the lived experience of the bodies that I'm working with. And so these are images of that body of work. Also, um, I think inadvertently, um, African Americans in, in an African-American context, inadvertently, black people function as queer object. And at our best, we don't function in any of those binaries. Um, when we came here, we weren't human beings. Um, this is a note that I, um, from a conversation that I had with my mentor, Arthur Jaffa. And so sort of like, when, when we came here, we weren't human beings. We were things of some sort. So we don't occupy the classic subject-object position. We are objects, but we are very particular kind of objects as we have feelings and thoughts. We're subjects, but we don't have sovereign reign over the universe. So we are a very particular type of thing. And I think that very queer space of being is what's very interesting for me and exciting about where the work can go. Um, oh, sorry. This is another image from that show. This work is also a really important work because, as you see the works in um, the new body of work were fully formed beings. And so within this work, you see these new, fully formed figures looking at a past work. But through that, this face, this abstracted face, comes through. So it's sort of like looking back to look forward. I was using a lot of images of fabric, too, as a way to um, talk about agency and, thinking of, and also thinking about um, gender, because I was using a lot of Indian fabrics. Um, and the sari was not originally a gendered garment. It was gendered you know, after colonialism. And um, in several parts of Africa, men are known to wear like, toga-type dresses. And so kind of bringing that into the work too. And it's not to say that there is this sort of utopian genderless um, thing happening in Africa before colonialism. We will never know. But um, I think you can find sort of seeds for the future in the past. And so that was sort of what I was thinking about. Um, in that work. Um, And also, as part of the show, I uh, did these um, recreations of stools from West and Central Africa. And for me, there was sort of um, the name of the show for this body of work was called Reclaiming Our Time. And oftentimes, when black bodies are in museum and gallery spaces, there's a sort of uneasiness. And in a lot of ways, I was thinking about the way my work privileges. um, black folk, and I wanted to kind of bring that into the work. And so, what does it mean for black folk to come into space and be offered a seat immediately upon entry? And my hope was that they would sit down and have a seat and engage in uh, meaningful dialogue about the work. In a lot of ways, these objects and their creators hold the keys to what we understand as abstraction in the West, but there is this historical eraser. And so, by Recreating these objects in the present, I'm trying to reimagine and construct new possi- possibilities for making um, these creators' legacy visible. At the moment, I'm very excited to say that in December, I will be going to Ghana for the first time. And yeah. So I'll be um, working with um, a number of carvers in uh, Uh, Accra, Kumasi, and it's the first of many trips where I'm working with carvers there to create a whole new body of work. And that body of work, what I'm seeking to do is to continue this whole conversation about agency. Um, The new works will be sculptures that will actually involve robotics. And they will not only look back at the viewer, but actually talk and engage with the viewer. But I'm working with carvers on the continent to create it as a way to give voice to the people who were essentially erased from this um, history. So um, thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> thank you. This, uh, the work is very dense, so I've, I ask you to please ask questions because I tried to kind of get as much in there as possible. Hi. Uh, can I ask you why, in particular, Ghana, out of all the countries? Because I um, did a heritage thing on myself and I found out that I am a descendant of Ghana. And so I felt like that would be like the first, a great starting point. Also, I think in, in all of the continent, I have the most um, connections there. So I have sort of like another family there. So it allows me to kind of move a bit easier. Yeah. Oh, also. For me personally, when I see a lot of the objects that really inspire me, they typically come from Ghana, particularly the Ashanti region, um, Benin, the Benin part of Nigeria, and um, the Congo, and then actual Benin, the country. And so those are the places that I, I really want to go to
2: first. Thank you so much, Rashad, for sharing that with us. Um, I got really excited when you said robotics, and I was wondering if you would maybe talk a bit more about um, the idea behind extending your technical practice in that way. I think you work across so many different mediums, whether it's community-based performance, music, sculpture, collage. I'm curious about this idea of technology, and sci-fi, and magic, and how new... um, Mediums you're experimenting with might relate to that.
1: Yeah, well, um, that whole conversation of agency in the work and really trying to push it as far as it can possibly go, and um, you know, you know, it started out as giving the work eyes and a mouth, so it became a face to kind of look back. And then they became fully formed. And so I think the natural next step was them to actually step out off the page and into the room, but not just be static, but actually be interactive. And so robotics seems like a great way to do that. And um, I've recently started um, to teach, and I've been developing a class in parallel. That I think is a work in itself, because I'm thinking a lot about, you know, like when black people came to America, we were technology. And so I'm thinking about like movies like Ex Machina and The Terminator and sort of like what happens when the technology realizes its own agency and starts to revolt. And so when thinking about the work and like trying to push this idea of agency as far as it can go, essentially the farthest I can go with this work is to give the work full agency until it can actually destroy me, its creator. And so that's sort of why I think uh, technology, well, robotics was the best way to go. I'm also trained as a programmer. And so um, I think kind of applying that to hardware but hiding it within you know, these kind of uh, African forms would allow for me to, to do that.
2: Thanks. Thanks also for. Thanks again for speaking. Um, I'm really interested in the kind of interplay in your work between improvisation, but also this very controlled, very formed kind of um, presentation. Um, it's interesting to me that you use, for example, explosions to represent Vogue dance because um, explosions are so kind of uncontrolled. But the performers we saw were extremely kind of skillful, very precise in their movements, and Vogue is just so technically sharp, that um, it's interesting to think about the influences of improvisation and, and jazz in um, your work, but then to see these very seamless, very um, yeah contained movements and also um, collages. They're just uh, very much made of these disparate elements, but they, they come together in this very highly formed way. So I wonder how you think about the relationship between those kind of different modes.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, I think that's sort of like the magic of improvisation is that um, when you're in that state of improvisation, you don't really have time to think like every move is the, you know, a, a move to save your life, right? And so if you ever had the pleasure of seeing you know, a jazz quartet play in freestyle like that, it's like everybody is improvising, but there is this sort of very formal structure because everybody's in that space of improvisation, which is a very kind of like transcendent kind of uh, space, and for me, that's something that I grew up with, and I'm always trying to somehow kind of bring into the work. And so I think, really, that's where it comes from. Because Vogue, uh, you know, in in my work, a lot a lot of that work is all improvis- improvisation. It's not. Really staged. No, the only part of like, um, for particularly the piece five that you may have seen, the only part that's choreographed is the final act. But all of the, you know, the second act is all improvised, and the musicians are improvising, everybody's improvising. And so, um, yeah, I think that it's sort of, and I'm improvising in all this work, sort of like bringing these different communities together and taking over an area. Um, in shade compositions, bringing all of these folks together and they're improvising this sound score, and then I'm sort of abstracting that in real time. Uh, in the videos, it's this sort of same thing, bringing these seemingly desperate elements together, but then abstracting them using various um, software. Uh, in the collage, also kind of just improvising, looking at images and putting them together and letting it kind of, the kind of picture sort of develop over time. And so I think. Um, yeah in a lot of ways, all these works are like these little uh, jazz quartets or <laughs> these little kind of like um, improvise these little improvisational exercises and so they do kind of take this kind of uh, very formal form, but I don't go into it that way yeah yeah.
2: Thanks Rashad, Thank you. your work is invigorating <laughs> and I'm really excited to see um, what happens when you take it to Ghana. Um, and I found the point about uh, what is it, stop playing in my face, really interesting in how you represent the communities that you work with and how their feedback plays into the next iterations of your work and going from subject to object. Um, in going to Ghana, do you have a process to get this feedback from this new community that you're working with? or maybe collaborators to broker this relationship and this feedback and looping it back into your work? Like, what are you thinking about?
1: Yeah, I think at the moment, the way that I plan to do that is uh, so there, you know, I have kind of identified a few folks that I'm going to work with, uh, but there's going to be a film to accompany that body of work. And the film will really consist of like interviews with these different folks. And it's really almost like an education for myself in a way that, you know, it just, I was talking with a friend about this the other night. And it's sort of like, because um, I did a talk recently at the Met. And um, it was actually, uh, I spoke about the stool that this is based on. Um, it's a karyatid a stool from uh, the Congo. And there was this whole text that I was given about the stool and how um, I can't. Say word for word, but um, so forgive me. But it was sort of about this. There was a specific tribe that was um, creating these objects uh, for the king, and they were talked about as they were cannibals, but they were almost like these mercenaries who can just kind of overthrow a city on their own. And so they just had so much power, and it was just the story just didn't add up because these people were painted in such a horrible way, but then they were also these like masterful like artists, and so. It's just like, if they had that much power, why would they ever need to work for anyone, you know? And so there's just so many parts of the story that didn't really add up. And it just made me think about how much, how so much of the history that we find out about ourselves in America is um, kind of filtered through other folk that don't look like us. And so for me, going back, that's why I said it's the first of many trips. And it's almost like me kind of giving myself my own education about the true origins of the things that I'm working from. And so I think the video and the film will kind of um, give provide me with that information that will then inform the work. Yeah, so it's gonna be like a lot of interviews, a lot of conversations, a lot of dinners that will result in the objects, yeah.
0: Please join me so much in thanking Rashad Newsom for his <laughs> fantastic Thank you so presentation much. Today. And we're going to clear the space right now, but um, if you do want to, please do come back for our next talk uh, in half an hour's time, uh, which is a panel discussion that looks at uh, contemporary photography or the contemporary photography of Africa. It's called Image of Africa. Thank you. Thank you again to Rashad. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) you.
1: (laughs) Thanks a lot.